Welcome to Water Experts Unfiltered, the podcast dedicated to digital innovations in the water industry. In each episode, we dive into specific water industry challenges with a Bentley expert and discuss technology solutions to real water problems. Learn why thousands of water infrastructure professionals use Bentley's hydraulics and hydrology software every day. So hello everyone, my name is Cecilia and today I have with me my colleague Tom Wolski, who you all must know. Even so, I will ask Tom to just to introduce himself and what he's doing in Bentley. Yes, hi. Um, I'm Tom Walski, and I'm a, uh, been working in hydraulic modeling for a long time in, in water and wastewater. And I'm probably one of the few people that go back to some of the beginnings of, of digital computers in modeling. So that's what we're going to be talking about now. Uh, you know, the title of this is Grandpa, tell us about the early days of modeling. And so that's what I'm going to do. I am actually a grandfather too. So Cecilia. Yes, well, uh, you've been in the water and wastewater industry for a long time. And as you said, you're, you know, today you're already a grandfather. I'm not sure how much your grandkids are into hydraulic modeling, but I'm sure that this audience today does. You've worked in with hydraulic modeling since its inception, and you have experienced the evolution of modeling as an engineer, also as operator, researcher, and also as a teacher. I mean, you have a background all in 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 hydraulics. So, how did we get to where we are today? Okay, so that's a, one of my favorite questions, <laughs> and uh, we got there because we needed it, or at least it made our lives a lot better. Let's go back about a hundred years and how people did hydraulic analysis a hundred years ago. And it was incredibly computationally intensive. Uh, engineers spent most of their time doing calculations and they used a thing called a slide rule. Now, I wonder how many of you even know what a slide rule is. And if we, this was a, a visual thing, I, I'd show you what one looks like. But there, this is how we did calculations then. And you'd have an office full of engineers who spent about 97% of their time doing calculations. And then another 10% working on solving the actual problems because it was just so tedious to do hydraulic calculations. They're, they're the worst kind of equations. Anytime you have a system that's not a purely branch system, you have to solve it iteratively. And the equations are nonlinear, and there's one for every pipe. And it's just a very, very hard process. Uh, things got a little better in the 1930s. There's a professor at the University of Illinois, a guy named Hardy Cross, who uh, was a structural engineer. And he developed methods for numerically going through a, a process to solve complex structures. And his department chairman was one time complaining that he wasn't writing enough papers. So he said, I'll, well, I'll take my method from structures and apply it over in, in water. And he actually did. And it was it's tough a problem in water because I said the equations are nonlinear. But he came up with what was called the Hardy Cross method. And that became kind of the standard method for manually going through and solving problems. But even so, it was still very tedious. I mean, you'd work for a whole day to solve one little problem. And your boss would come around at the end of the day to check your work. And he'd look at your work and he'd say, gee, I thought that was going to be a 12-inch pipe. You have an 8-inch pipe here. And you'd look at your boss, look at your day's worth of work. You look at your boss again. They take your day's worth of work, throw it in the trash, and that's it. Of course, nowadays, we click on the button, hit go, and uh, you've got a new answer with a different pipe size. And so it was just a very time-consuming, difficult method. And then 
uh, around the time of World War II, they started coming up with analog computers. In this case, they represented pipes by wires with special fluoristors in it. Because because if you know, uh, you can't really just build an electric analog of a water system because in electric systems, you're working with linear equations like Ohm's law. And in uh, water systems, you're not. You're working with tough nonlinear equations. But they they came up with methods to, to to simulate pipes using these analog computers. And so the current going through a, a wire was the flow and the voltage was the hydraulic grade in, in that system. And people did use these, but again, very cumbersome to use. It was better than sitting there all day with a, with a slide rule, but it was still just very cumbersome putting wires together. And they would take up an entire room building a model of any system of any size. So it was a very challenging time to do this kind of work, but I mean, things worked. You know, we have pipes in the ground that were built, that were laid 100, 120 years ago, and they're still serving. So it, things got done, but the way it got done was with very, you know, very large number of computations and very conservative designs. You know, the saying back then was, when in doubt, build it stout. Or another thing a guy told me once is, you can never put a pipe in that was too big. So, you know, you, you overspent because you weren't sure your calculations. You couldn't really do a lot of analyses. And part of design is asking a lot of what if questions. And we're asking what if questions when you had a, you know, do very tedious calculations was not going to get you very far. You, would, you, you couldn't do a lot of analyses. So you, you would use rules of thumb and just kind of, you know, you take loops and break loops so it'd be simpler to solve them. And there, there were a lot of tricks people used. And then finally, you know, around the 1960s, digital computers became user-friendly enough that you could actually program them. And that opened up a whole world of calculations. But there weren't many algorithms out there, weren't many computers that can do this. And basically what they did was they just took the Hardy-Cross method and they computerized it. And there, it was hard to communicate with the computers back then. Now, another thing like slide rules are punch cards. The way you communicated with computers was with punch cards, had little holes that you, you that would get punched in at these card punch machines. And uh, you put your card deck into the computer, it'd read the, read the card deck and do the calculations. And you couldn't afford to do, have the computer in, a, in an engineering office or a water utility office. So like some of the first stuff, there was a company in Texas that you would uh, punch your punch cards in your office you would put them in the mail. You would mail them to this company in Texas that charged you per pipe. You know, calculations, they had a formula there. If you have 100 pipes in your system, this is how much it cost and such. And they would run it on their computer because there weren't many computers around then. And then they'd mail it back to you. So it'd make one model run that would take a week. And my friend Jeff Crookshank, who works for Hayes and Sawyer, talks about when he was started, he worked for a company called Potometer Associates, which was one of the, the leading consulting companies in doing hydraulic analysis. And it would take a week. And if you made one little mistake in your punch cards, you lost the whole week, which which now sounds just ridiculously difficult. But that's the way that the calculations were done back in those days. And uh, I, I one of the first jobs I had, we didn't have a computer either, so I would punch the cards, and my boss, being very cheap, would would rent time at a, a factory. They had a computer in a factory nearby, and so at night, I'd have to go in. After dinner, I'd go back into the office, get my punch cards, drive out to this factory, find a place to park, because there's always piles of snow around, it seemed, and go in there and and 
put my card deck in and hopefully it would run. If not, I'd have to go back to the office and punch some more cards and all. So this is this is the way things were back, say in the, the early 70s, mid 70s and such. And it was it was very you know, difficult to, to do this work. And you had to be you spent most of your time fighting with the computers as opposed to uh, thinking about how the system was really going to operate. And so gradually, though, more and more people started to write uh, programs. Uh, the, the language of choice for software back then was Fortran. I don't know, that's probably like Latin nowadays, but uh, it is a, you know, <laughs> it's a very useful uh, language for doing scientific calculations and engineering. And so various professors, it was a went to usually usually was university professors who would write these programs. There are several of them around the country uh, that developed their own software and they'd sell their software and you could load it on your computer or the computer you had access to and run these hydraulic models. Uh, the most commonly used one was one by, by Don Wood at the University of Kentucky. He was a professor there, but he actually didn't start off as a professor. Back in the early days of the US space program, they, they sent astronauts off in the space as they did. And he was one of the people who was an astronaut candidate until the very last day. They, they kept they had started with a big pool and they kept narrowing the pool of astronauts down. And he was one of the last ones they they didn't include in, in, in as an astronaut. So he got a job as a professor and he was a very smart guy. And he wrote his own program. He was at the University of Kentucky. And the University of Kentucky program, as it was known back then, was the most common one that people were using. Uh, he, he would spend a lot of his time though just, you know, and tech support basically helping people run their hydraulic models. And there were several other people, uh, Simsek Sirikarli at University of Dayton and others, uh, you know, this is Akron, actually, not Dayton. Uh, and there's uh, there are people around the world who built their own. Some consulting companies made their own programs. Uh, they, they eventually realized it was not a good idea trying to support the software and, and do the technical support, but there were some. I used one that came from a company called Black, uh, Metcalf and Eddie had their own, and I, I was using that at one time. The only real uh, commercial vendor at that time was a company called Stoner Associates, and this was a company in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and they, they, they had probably the most deluxe uh, of the programs, but they were very expensive, so only the largest cities or the people with the most money can afford that particular software from Stoner, and their leading hydraulics, they, they did both gas analysis, which would uh, Stoner really liked to do, and the water guy there was a guy named Joe Kroon, who eventually retired from Bentley Systems a few years back, but uh, Joe was actually trained as a nuclear engineer. And he lived in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, which happens to be pretty close to a place called Three Mile Island. And when Three Mile Island had their incident, uh, Joe realized that nuclear engineering wasn't a good thing to do, so he had to get into water. And so he joined Stoner Associates. And he was the guy I had a lot of interaction with over the years. He was a very, very good speaker and a very dapper looking guy, and a nice fellow. But so Stoner was one of the, the main ones there. So that that kind of gets us up to the the mainframe era of, of computers. And so Cecilia, at that time then, we went through some changes uh, in the way computers worked. What about that? I mean, wow, what a journey, Tom. Yeah. You started 100 years um, back and it's interesting. Uh, how you were talking about people really need to do all the calculations right, otherwise, you know, just lose the work. Uh, I think this also means that you needed to pay more attention. Maybe today people, you know, sometimes they don't pay much attention because softwares and, and computers have bring uh, facility so they can actually 
do some mistakes and 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 redo things. So yeah, but it's interesting to to hear that that perspective. I mean, most of your earliest work was done with mainframe computers. So how did the coming of personal computers change this landscape? Well, actually, there was one step in between personal computers and the mainframe, because <laughs> these mainframe computers were so big and powerful, they could do calculations so much faster than you have a way of getting data in and out of the computer. So what became, what became the way to run models was through time sharing. So you'd have a terminal in your office, and you would log into this computer in some remote area. Each company, Univac had their own, and CDC and IBM and Xerox, they all had their own computers that you would go to and, and buy time off them. And you would upload this thing through a phone line uh, that had a, an acoustic coupler that took the phones, the sounds from the phone and sent it over the wire. And it was very slow. It's like, uh, like a hundred characters per second or something like that, the speed at which you, you could computer com, communicate with these uh, mainframe computers. But it still was so much better than having to drive to a factory to, to find a, a, a wait in line to be able to use the, the computer there. So, um, so time sharing became the way that we interacted and ran our models. And there were, you know, some, some very good ones, but then, PCs came in, as you said, Cecilia, and PCs really changed the world, personal computers, because now you had the pro program, but instead of a gigantic mainframe computer in your building, you had a thing sitting on your desk that you can work with. And this really changed the game a lot, but these things were not very powerful. They, they're about as powerful as your cell phone is nowadays. Uh, so you couldn't, it was very slow running programs. And the, but there was, there's, they were available. You know, Don Wood converted his um, KY Pipe program, what it became known as, to the PCs, and a lot of other people converted these programs to PCs. And I, I worked on one called Ladizo, which was uh, one that when I was with the Corps of Engineers, it was the Corps of Engineers program, and it was, you know, one that Johannes Gessler, John Schustrom, and I put together. And we did it. It was a, it was a good program. It was useful, but. The Corps of Engineers wasn't interested in uh, supporting these things. They, they really weren't into tech support. And I didn't want to spend my life doing tech support for a program. So once I left the Army Corps of Engineers, th that program kind of didn't get used that much. There was a guy who took a copy of it in South Africa uh, and sold it around there. And he was he was he did really well uh, in, in in it. But uh, that program is now part of the history of, of modeling. But the, the problem at this time was that the user interfaces were not very good. I mean, it was basically text. You would have to type in pipe seven goes from node 22 to node 17. It's 12 inches in diameter and it's 538 inches feet long. And you would have to measure those lengths. You, you would have uh, to, to sit there with your ruler or a little measuring wheel and measure the length of the pipes. As you and type in the, each one of them manually, and so building models was an incredibly tedious job. You know, elevation data is very important, and to get elevation data, you would take out a topographic map with uh, contour lines, and you would, you know, 
interpolate between contour lines to find out the elevation of the nodes. And you'd have some kind of like a clear mylar overlay over your topo map and you'd sit there for days. If you had a couple hundred uh, nodes in your model, you sat there and had to find every one of these elevations by interpolating between contour lines. What you'd usually do is you'd find like someone who's like, like a co-op student. You'd say, hey kid, you want to uh, become a computer modeler? Well, here, you've got to go first of all and, and read off these hundred and some contour elevations. And after a while, the kid decided he really didn't want to be an engineer. He wanted to get into something like art history or something like that because it was just so tedious being an engineer. And it was a lot of work to build these models. And what was happening was you'd spend about 80% of your time building the model. And finally, at the end of the study, you'd run, you'd start to do analysis. And that's not the that shouldn't be the way work is broken down. You should spend a little bit of time building your models, calibrating them, getting the elevation data, and spend most of your time thinking about how big the pipe should be, which pump should we buy? These kind of questions, because those are the questions you're really trying to answer, right? It was not just getting results out of the computer, but it was trying to solve real engineering problems with these things. So the, the user interface was not very good at building the models, and it was just as bad on output. They weren't, there weren't these nice computer screens we have nowadays. You would get printout and the printed out. Uh, originally, they'd have like a selectric typewriter going click, 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 printing it out. And then they got line printers that would print out a whole line at a time. But what you got were piles of text. So you had to look at all this text and figure out what does this mean? And you spend a lot of time drawing little sketches of your system and, and labeling them with numbers you pulled off the text files. And as you made more runs at doing these what if analyses, what would happen is you start to build up piles of results, just piles of paper. And it would it would become very tedious. And then when you were doing this work, you'd get to a point where you said, gee, this run here sounds like one I made yesterday, but less yesterday I had a 12-inch pipe, and this time I think I did a 16-inch pipe. And gee, I forgot which one, which which one of these printouts on my floor of my office that's piling up was was which. And this is where nowadays we have things like scenario management, where you just automatically keep track of all these runs now. But you didn't have that ability back then. You had to be really organized, or otherwise you would drown in paper because that's the way the results came out. They came out as paper. And that, uh, so it was, uh, you know, very, very difficult to, to do the work. It was not, it was uh, something where you had to be very patient and very meticulous, but it was becoming popular. One of the earliest surveys of this was like in the, the kind of the mid eighties, guy named Lee Cesario, who worked for Denver Water at the time as their modeler. He, he, he formed an AWWA committee, which is the forerunner of the current engineering modeling applications committee. And uh, they did a survey and people were actually using these things. And, and the majority of them used the, the University of Kentucky program. Uh, Stoner program was used by some other people wrote their own, uh, especially in consulting companies. But they were, uh, you know, not not easy to use, but but they were there was, it was coming up. People were actually, you know, using the models for design now, and 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 they, it was feasible. It was not just, you know, a, a massive product project where you needed a PhD in hydraulics to solve it. They became things that practicing engineers could use, uh, and it's just a matter of spending the time to do it. And at at that point in time, um, you know, the uh, the use of uh, graphics became really something that became 
necessary, or at least people realized how necessary it was and getting the results and visualizing things in maps and such. And that's where um, we came through, like maybe in the late 80s, we, we got to the point where they, the PC started, each, each generation of chips from the 86, the 286, the 386, and the 486, the graphics got better and the screens got bigger and the computers got more powerful. And so Cecilia, you probably were still a youngster when, when these, these computers were coming out like this. And, um, but oh, the, yeah, yeah. This, yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I, was, I was a youngster, I'm sure. I mean, when I started, I actually had a, a teacher who had this, this program, his own program, and he had his own old computer that would only run in his computer, right? Because it was his own program. And we would all, you know, kind of look at each other like, okay, really? But I mean, how good were the graphics and user interface in the early PC models? From what I recall, at least from listening and, and seeing images, I mean, do you want to comment on that? Yes, they, they were terrible initially. I mean, they, they were very crude. And this is the, the uh, odd thing is that, that it was, the, it was the, the graphics and the interface, you know, the in, user input and the user output was the hard part. I mean, the solvers, you can write a solver, you know, and it was, but it was trying to get the data in and the results out that, that was the really big challenge. And because um, like I said, you would just create a, a lot of a printout and such. And then uh, what happened there was, you know, things, you know, people start to realize, gee, if instead of writing our own graphics, why couldn't we link things to existing graphics? And this is where there's a guy from Connecticut who dropped out of engineering school, a guy named John Haystead. And his, he worked, so he got a job with his father doing, working with the computers in the office. And his the, uh, father had an engineering company. And they started out just uh, converting programs from mainframe computers to the PCs. And this is something that John did, you know, for his dad's engineering company. And um, they, 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 they did a couple of their own and they formed a company called Haystead Methods. And they, they started selling some of these things. And they said, you know, water distribution should be one of the things that, that we can, you know, do a good job selling and making a good bit of money on. And they, so they, they looked at it, though, and said, well, we could you know, kind of contract with the University of Kentucky and use their numerical solver, but we want to use a real graphics routine, something that was a you know, true CAD. And so they had an association with AutoCAD at this time. So the, you would have a program that the computer software and the calculations were done with uh, the Kentucky program, University of Kentucky program, and then the results would get passed over to AutoCAD. And they built this interface between the, the solver and AutoCAD. And they called that program CyberNet. And that, and John was a, a great guy for, for marketing. He was an excellent guy at selling things. And he started selling CyberNet. And CyberNet became the model of choice for just about uh, Everybody's buying a new model usually bought CyberNet because it had some features to it that were really good. You had some professional, professional looking um, graphics coming out and you had the state of the art in the numerical engines. So that that was a, a you know, a, a big thing that, that be able to link together um, the solver with the graphics and making it, it feasible. Okay, so then they were looking for somebody to 
to develop training materials for CyberNet. And they found me, of all people. And I was a professor <laughs> at Wilkes University at that time. The right and person. They, yeah, well, they said, well, can you develop our training material for us? And I said, being kind of naive, I said, yeah, sure, I'll, I'll do it. And they, I had a little contract with them to develop their, their uh, training notes. These were done on uh, overhead projectors with software called Harvard Graphics. And this gives you back to, to that time in space, sort of the early 90s. And I was working on it, but things were going pretty slowly. So one day I was in my office working on this stuff after classes and all, and it was going to snow that night. So I said, oh, I'll just wait here in the office and I'll work on these notes. And, you know, when the snow stops, I'll drive home. Well, I kept working and it kept snowing and I kept working and it kept snowing. And we had ended up having a really massive snowstorm and I ended up working around the clock and uh, that's how I finished <clears throat> the first set of notes for CyberNet is I was just stuck in my office all night and I never pulled an all-nighter before or since and that was my only all-nighter of my life but we got it done I got it done and we we trained people on it right? we traveled and, and the, the training was really fun to do because we traveled all over the country it wasn't like this stuff today where you do things online because the internet just wasn't really real at this time they're still you know theoretically at work but it, it was not practical tool so we did everything by traveling to a city we'd rent a room in a hotel a conference room and we'd set up a room full of pcs that we'd rent in that city and we would teach training courses made a lot of good friends now some of the people who are some of my earliest classes are really senior people at engineering companies now who uh, you know just happened to uh you know, be there, and some of them moved on to other things, but a few of them, you know, I think like people like uh, Earl Schneider and Kevin Lapdos and people like that are still doing this kind of work, uh, and it's it's really heartening because they're they're some of the leaders in the field now, and they 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 started their work from from uh, the training classes that we we travel around and did all over the place. So that was a, uh, you know. What we did was live training, and it was a great way to make friends. Because when I do training nowadays, you know, I kind of get to know the people who are, who are in the classes, but not the way it was when you 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 know sat there in the same room and you went to lunch together and you went out to eat after the training classes. So it was it's not quite as personal as it was back then. What we're doing today, but but it was more expensive, of course. You had to travel to a city and get a hotel room for yourself, and it was just a, a it's not didn't scale as well as, as what we have today. But then along the way, people were trying to do water quality modeling on top of the hydraulic solvers. And there was a, you know, an effort by EPA and the American Water Works Association Research Foundation to see, can we do uh, analysis of uh, water quality as well? Uh, some people had done pretty good work. Walter Grayman had done some really good work with uh, some software, and the, the people at the Stoner Associates had a water quality routine. So there, there was stuff going on tracking water quality, and it was became pretty interesting because there's there's some you know contamination events of uh, that water quality modeling helped people solve these these uh, events of so water system contamination. Uh, the book and the movie, A Civil Action, was actually you know, a movie about water system contamination, and a subplot of it was they were using hydraulic models to figure out which people got this contaminated water. But there wasn't really a program out there that was very usable and uh, you know, user-friendly. So 
AWWA Research Foundation and EPA uh, decided to have a conference. They, they invited people just like maybe the, the top 50 people in the world in that area um, of, of modeling. And I mean, it really was a who's who at, at that session. I was lucky enough to be one of the people they invited. Um, and there was people there from all over the world who were some of the leaders, like that Joe Krumi said from Stoner. There was Uri Shamir, who was uh, one of the leaders in this industry from Israel. And there are people from just all walks of life. And the, the people, they, they was in Cincinnati, Ohio, because that's where APA's uh, water research group was focused. Bob Clark was the, the head of that team at the, the, back in those days. And they, it was a great session. I mean, it was like two days and we just, you know, it was very open-minded because nobody was trying to sell anything then. It was just a matter of, you know, talking about how you solve water quality modeling problems uh, on the computer. How you could take the results of the hydraulic model and also use it to calculate water quality. And during this session, there was this uh, kind of a, a small guy, kind of balding, who just kind of sat there and just took it all in. And afterwards, uh, well, his name was a guy named Lou Rossman. And Lou went to his boss, Bob Clark, and says, I can write a program that can do that. And so EPA started work on it. And it wasn't easy. It took several years for him to come out with the program. And it was called EPANET. And it, it is still now the most widely used solver. Now, there are other programs that are built around EPANET or used the solver from EPANET. But that became, you know, and it has become, and it still is, even though it's done over 20 years ago, uh, it became the basis for so much other software work and other research and all that they grew out of this program. And, and Rossman was a, just an outstanding programmer. He, he, he did some, some, it was very robust. I mean, he's, and he, he would fix things really quickly. And so it became kind of the state of the art. And, and at Hasted Methods, uh, you know, they decided they would use that solver because they had to pay a royalty to University of Kentucky and that with CyberNet, and they didn't have to pay a royalty because EPANET was public domain. So they they used it, and everybody then took that basic solver and enhanced it. And Hasted Methods was, you know, the best at doing that and enhancing the numerical engine that that was at the the root of EPANET and the water quality side of things. And so that became kind of a major milestone. And so you couldn't use, you couldn't call it CyberDead anymore. So what we, what the Hasted Methods people did was they called it WaterCAD because it, it was water model and it had, and they built their own graphics at that time. By that time, they had some pretty good uh, tools for graphics. The graphics had improved much more on, on computers. And so the WaterCAD became you know, the most widely used software in the uh, water industry at this time. And it had some really interesting tools that were developed along the way. Uh, two of the, the most interesting one were um, the uh, scenario management, because what does engineering analysis usually involve? It involves doing trade-offs and, and, and what ifs, what if this is to happen, happens? What if, what if it's a peak day in the summer? What if it's a low flow day in the winter? What about if this pipe breaks? How is the system going to work? What's going to happen when the population doubles over the next five years? So there's many, many runs of a program. And as I said, in the early days, you were lucky to, to make a few runs because it was so hard to build the models. But with, with the WaterCAD, it suddenly became a lot easier to build the models and view the results. And so you're able to do more analysis. But again, you can generate so many different 
cases that you ran, so many different runs. And so Hasted Methods developed a thing called scenario management. And it's a way to keep all the, the model runs separate in a, and you can go back and track, you know, this particular run I made was based on this previous run with these changes made between it. And you go back to see where that came from and that came from. And it became uh, easy now to track what your scenario was. Well, you didn't have to be as careful as, as you were in the old days when you just had stacks of printer paper laying around your office. Instead, now you have scenario management. You go back and say, okay, we, we use this assumption of, of possible future growth in the system, and this is the scenario, and this is the pipe we should use in this case. But on this other scenario, we've looked at uh, different conditions, and we can now compare scenarios and figure out, and do a much better job with design, because that's what engineering design is about. It's about comparing different alternatives, looking at different ways to solve problems and coming up with the best way, not just the way that would work like in the old days, as long as it worked, it was okay. You know, you couldn't build something too big. Now you could start, well, maybe if we make these pipes a little smaller, we could uh, save some money on this. Or maybe if we pick a different pump out, we can save some money and, and, and it became possible to try a lot of solutions. Another thing that Hasted Methods uh, you know, kind of perfect, introduced and perfected was what about fire flows? Because if you want to solve pipes, usually the design of most small distribution pipes is controlled by fire flows. And you want to make sure that every point in your system, every hydrant could meet the required fire flows. But that would involve thousands of runs possibly because each analysis was a separate flow pattern, a separate demand loaded on the system. So what happened was they said, well, let's automate that. The computers can just work and we can just sit back and let the computers solve these things. So they developed fire flow analysis tools, which other people have copied over the years. And all. But what, what this does is it can take and move fire flows through the system node by node and find out which places in the system can we meet the required fire flows, which ones would, could we not meet it. And then you could use the, the model to design the improvements so you could meet the required fire flows. This is another thing that Hasted Methods came out with that really you know, separated themselves from the other uh, technologies that were out there at the time. And I said other people have come up with this same thing nowadays, but this was a these were some major breakthroughs, some major advances in, in the science of this. So, um, yeah, let's see. So, in um, your opinion, so, this is how the Hasted methods advanced the state of the art in modeling? Yes, it was. It was, it uh, was by scenario management, which is something that before the others were not doing it, for example. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah that, that's still a differentiator with Hasted Methods. And now, of course, Bentley um, is, is some of these kind of tools here and, and some of the workflows that, that were developed at that time. And, um, you know, by the time we got into the, the, the late 90s, I was working for American Water and I was still going around doing these training courses under contract with Hasted Methods. And John Hasted every year would, would call me up and say, hey, why don't you come to work for us and, and offer me a bunch of money? And I'd say, no, nah, I'm, I'm happy where I'm at. And, and um, each year it would go on. And it turned out that was a great negotiating strategy because each year he offered me more money. And finally, one year he gave me an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> and, and so I ended up working for Hasted Methods at that time around the year 2000. And, uh, Y2K changeover. So now we've talked about getting better results out, but 
data entry was still kind of hard. It still involved a lot of typing. And what was becoming really popular was in importing the data automatically, describing the network in a CAD file and pulling that information from the CAD file. And uh, that was an important part of WaterCAD. And it was one another one of the differentiators. But now, by this time, GIS became reality. And it was something that a lot of people had. It wasn't just a theoretical thing anymore. GIS was something that uh, people used to store their data, to store their maps of their system. And again, um, methods came up with a series of tools. There were really just three basic kinds of data that you need for modeling. I mean, there's other kinds as well, but one was the network. You need some kind of description of the network. How big were the pipes? How, how long were they? Where were they located? And so they built Model Builder, a tool that, that does that sort of thing, that, that builds the network model for you. Okay, so next thing though, one of the most important things that's usually not in the GIS is the elevation of things. And elevation is of course very critical in hydraulic calculations, because if you go uphill, you lose pressure. And so they, they have to, how do you bring in all this elevation data? Remember those, those kids we talked about who we try to in, interpolate between contour lines? <laughs> well, yeah. that, you know, you didn't want to do that. And so they came up with a thing called terrain extraction, T-Rexes, we call this a short, a short name. So you can have, you had a digital terrain model, you had some type of data and that type of data was becoming available widely by that time. And you could just essentially set up you know, where you're going to get the data from, push a button, and all of a sudden, all your nodes had elevation data on them. And this was making the job easier. And Much third, easier. Sorry? <laughs> Much easier. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then the third piece of this, this three-legged stool was the demands. Where, do, where is the water being used? And again, this was something that took a lot of approximations, and there are a lot of tricks people use to load demands in the models, but they, they, they weren't as good as they could be, and they weren't very satisfying. But nowadays, people are starting to build databases with their customer meters. And they, because, of course, you know, the first first application of computers in the water industry, of course, was sending out bills. That goes back to like 1960 or so is when they started, you know, computerizing billing systems. But now the idea of pulling data from the customer meter data and loading the model with it became practical. So we, we developed something they call Load Builder. And that Load Builder now can, can provide data out of your billing system and put it into the models. Now we've come further than that since this time, but but originally, like in the early 2000s, this was really something that was very impressive. So with basically three pushes of a button, model builder, load builder, and T-Rex, you can build a model and you had time now to do the studies, to do a much better job at the analyses. You could keep track of the analyses <laughs> with Scenario Manager and you could, uh, you know, solve like, Fireflow all over the place. Uh, some other tools we developed was the idea of, okay, what do you do when a pipe breaks? And what people originally would do is they just yank that pipe out of the model and rerun it. But that's not what, what happens when you have a pipe break, right? You can shut off a segment of the system defined by isolation valves. And these are not, there's not a one-to-one -one relationship between these segments that get isolated during a pipe break and the pipes in the model. The segments have other shapes. There's not a one-to-one -one relationship. So we developed our criticality and segmentation tool where you can automatically, again, with a push of a button, identify the segments that, that are in the system that would get shut down. So you put a, a break pipe break at this point in the model 
and you can say, okay, show me which valves I've got to close to, to isolate this break. And then we take those pipes out of the system. There might be one pipe through it in a segment. There might be five pipes in a segment. And it also includes the junctions. And that was something that if you're just shutting off a pipe or pulling a pipe out of the model to simulate a break, you're really doing a little bit of a misleading uh, analysis. The results you have are not quite um, you know the uh, exactly what would happen during a real pipe break. So the the again the the Hasted uh, segmentation analysis um, and the criticality where we can now simulate. Okay, what if this segment breaks? Okay, what if this segment breaks? And again, just like with fire flows, you can march through the system and shut off segments and look at which segment, which place in the system. Uh, would cause a lot of problems when you have a pipe break because you know not all segments in the system are alike. There are some where if it breaks, you shut off a street, put five people out of water. But there are other places where if the pipe breaks, you shut off a part of the system and you put 10,000 people out of the water. And this is where the criticality analysis could find those critical segments. And you could do things like place more valves there or, or parallel some of the pipes so that one pipe break would not take out a major number of people. And so again, another another advance. And this by this time though, John Hastings is getting bored. He, he gets bored easily. And Bentley Systems is looking to acquire some hydraulic analysis tools because they were one of the, you know, the leading companies in the, the CAD market and the, the you know, engineers used it all over the place. So Bentley Systems bought Hastead Methods. And would they with that inherited? Oh yeah, and we first of all, before we did it, we there had to be a different name than WaterCAD when we we integrated so well with GIS and all. So then they came up with was Water Gems, which Gems originally stood for Geospatial Engineering and Modeling System. Now it's just Water Gems, but uh, <laughs> Water Gems became you know the, the the tool when when Bentley Systems acquired Hasted Methods, and then then that became a, a you know the product that, that uh, they acquired. And it, we also, of course, had you know sewer models and stormwater models, and I give a whole talk on the history of those kind of models as well, that um, how, how we got to where we are, which it took a very different path in those, those fields. But with that, uh, we kind of got up to today almost, that um, we have these incredibly easy to use uh, ways to get the, get the data into the model, to run the model very efficiently, and to get great ways to display the results. And they've made it so that you spend a fraction of your time doing those things and battling with the computer, and you spend the most of your time doing engineering work, which is really important. Yeah, I mean, you've done that kind of stuff, Cecilia, right? You've been an engineer in real practice. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And you were talking about a lot of things that I could relate to. And even though when I started working in consultancy, we had models, I had these bosses uh, that they would say, oh, you guys, you, you don't know what is a model. You click on a button, you see water, and you think it is correct, so you need to do it by hand. So we did have to go and get the terrain um, um, model, and we would get, you know, the 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 nodes and we would have to do all of that by hand before even touching a model so yeah i can relate to all of the things and by the way i still think that training in person is still the best training because you get a different type of relation you get to know people you engage also with their difficulties and also trying to support them i think it's the same today uh, when you meet clients when you meet people around the world i mean the digital is important it is good because it does 
reduces distance, of course, when it's not possible, but whenever it is possible, I mean, it's much more um, interesting. So, I mean, you have the experience, you have been working, you know, today digitally much more, right, without leaving your house. Right. And we're having this podcast, right, digitally, so people do not. So there's a lot of benefits on on this, but I do still think that the training needs to be, you know, with your hands and in person so that you can actually understand better, um, better everything. So I was going to ask you how today's model differ from the ones you started from, right? But I think you partly have uh, already answered this. I don't know if you want to add something. Well, um, yeah, because we're, we're what we're focusing on now is, uh, is something that uh, back in the late 80s at the AWWA annual conference, I gave a talk. And one of the things I talked about was, you know, the models are engineers tools. And the engineers use them for pipe sizing and tank locations and all those kind of things. But there's some real benefit to using modeling in operations. And uh, it's funny, I go back and look at that paper and it talked about how people were going to be using modeling and operations in no time. And this was in the late 80s. And it's taken us about, you know, I, I eventually proved to be right, but it took us about 20 years longer than I thought it would to get into modeling and operations. But now operators are using modeling a lot more. And it's it's becoming a real important part of our market, and people, you know, are, have integrated um, the modeling with the control room operators. And we have you know products like WaterSight, which is our our digital twin uh, solver for um, for for this oriented towards yeah. yes for water distribution operations as opposed to the engineers approach because engineers have a different way to approach things and think about things than the operators do and so we have to you know we've, we've come up with tools now that not only is modeling a, a thing that operators do uh, that engineers do but it's something that operators can do and so that really has has uh, opened up hydraulic models to a, a larger audience and we see more and more people in operations using it because there's still the question now some places the operators would rather just call the engineer and say hey run this model for me i'm going to see what's going to happen but there's more and more the operators will want to get their hands on the model themselves and run them in their own control room yes they want to understand what is the impact they because they already have a, have a model they already have their own network in place they want to have a look at what are the implications and as you said before you know the scenario management what will happen if i have this or in case they have a pipe break you know which valves they need to close so that they can isolate that without affecting uh, people or at least affecting the less people they they can so what do you think is next in modeling tom i mean where are we going okay well the thing that's this the hottest right now is uh the fact that the uh, meter company so pushing AMI data, AMI, yeah, advanced metering infrastructure, and they're looking for places that they can use that data because now instead of just knowing, uh, you know, what the demand was in your house over a month and getting the average, you can get data in the utilities office that tells you what flow a person was using in their house every minute of the day if you want, and so this AMI data is becoming, you know, really vast amount of data that people can collect now and store and they want to know how can we use it well there are ways we, and we're working on you know things like this right now of being able to use this um, advanced metering data and help to make the models more accurate 
They can tell you what's going on, not just what happened, you know, on average over the month, but what happens during the course of the day. What happens when you have a special events in the town? How do weekend model demands or the system demands differ from weekday system demands? What happens in the winter demands versus summer demands? I mean, trying to do all that data manually would be terribly hard. And now with the use of AMI data, we can do a much better job looking at a lot of different scenarios that we just didn't have time to look at and giving us some insights into the, uh, the way that systems really operate. So that's, um, you know, I one would of the, say the that, things. yeah, I would also include the part with real time control systems based also oh. in modeling and scenario management, of course. Oh. But I think we need to leave some of these topics of the future for a future podcast. We could continue okay. to talk for hours. I mean, your experience oh, yes. is impressive, Tom, of course, always. And we lose track uh, of time. So, I mean, it's a really interesting topic for the next um, podcast. I hope you can continue with us in the next um, the next topics. So please leave your comments about this or other podcasts that you would also like to to hear about. Tell us about your experience from the early days as well. I'm sure Tom and our listeners will also like to hear about uh, about that. So. I want to thank you, Tom, for being with us. It's always a pleasure and an honor to talk with you, of course, and sharing your experience with, with our audience. So thanks, Tom. Okay, yeah, stay tuned. We're going to be doing more of these, not necessarily on history, but we have a, <laughs> of, we have a lot of our people. I mean, Cecilia has already done a couple of these podcasts, and she does a really nice job with them as well. And we have other people who uh, deliver these things. So we're going to have, it's not just going to be about history. It's going to be about all oh, no. sorts of topics. And uh, we have a, a great group of people at Bentley that will be delivering these things. So you're not just stuck listening to me all the time. Oh, we love listening to you, Tom. <laughs> okay, yeah, so, okay. Thank you very so, much, everyone. Yeah, have a great day, folks. Yeah. Have a great day. Thanks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to learn more with Bentley's experts helping you solve real water problems with real technology solutions.